Welcome, everybody, to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham Deweese, but this week, I'm going to hand off the show to the Soul Cal Seahawk and the Soul Man. That's right, Rob English and Brian Solak. But enough about those fools, because we have <laughs> a special guest this week, a living legend on the field, on the TV, on the radio, and in our brainwaves soon soon to be. Um, one very uh, uh, voice of the Seahawks himself, Steve Rabel. How are we doing, Steve? We're doing great. Hi, everybody. How you doing, guys? Everything all right tonight? Everything's all right. You made it better, though, by joining us. Thank well, you. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. Right on. Right on. Right on. Well, jumping right into it. Uh, first of all, uh, Steve, just I'll just say it, it's a it's an absolute uh, um, honor and privilege to be speaking to you here. Um, you know, growing up, I grew up in Bremerton, um, and uh, you know, so I grew up, you know, hearing your voices in your face you know, my whole, my whole life. So it's, uh, this is very, this is awesome. Well, it's a pleasure. I, I have found that, uh, I get a lot of this, uh, that, uh, my grandfather told me about you. Or my grandmother really liked you. Okay, great. Fine. All right. I, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll admit to being that old. So no problem. Right. <laughs> uh, well, listen, Hey, uh, um, uh, Steve, so uh, just to get into it, uh, Take us back uh, to to the beginnings, if you will, um, from Louisville, correct? Uh, right. And um, went to school, Georgia Tech. Went to, um, yep. Just to, to walk us through, what was it like, you know, going through, um, uh, you know, being drafted in the second round by Seattle and and, and relocating across country and, and and that whole thing? What, what, what was that like for Steve Rabel? Well, um, I'll, I'll go back a couple of steps, only because coincidentally, um, Tomorrow morning, I leave on a flight at 6.30 bound for Louisville, Kentucky, my hometown, because this is the weekend of my high school 50th reunion. Oh, wow. Now, I have missed every reunion because I always have them, as you know, guys, during football season, right? Yep. So, um, and I've been otherwise occupied for the last 47 years here with the Seahawks and before that at Georgia Tech. So I never had weekends to go to games or go see any of my old buddies. So we're playing in Detroit this weekend. So I get a chance to go back, fly through Louisville, stop, see everybody, do the high school game tomorrow, then fly up to Detroit to do the game on Sunday. So that part is going to be a treat. And whatever has happened to me over the years, over the half a century that I have, almost half a century that I've been doing this, it all started at that high school in Louisville, Kentucky, Trinity High School. Um, All boys, Catholic high school, great football teams. Um, and I was a little too small to play my freshman year, but then I, I went out, I was a sprinter and, um, ended up, you know, getting a scholarship to college at Georgia tech. Uh, interesting note, the guy who recruited me was a head, was a, an assistant coach, later a head coach named Jerry Glanville and oh, okay. Jerry, you know, about half crazy. And he was funny <laughs> and used to take it. He'd come to Louisville and take me and about five other guys out to the best steakhouse in Louisville. And we get a steak about as big as a catcher's mitt and just about that thick. And we thought we were just died and gone to heaven. So how could you say no to Jerry? And so we go to Georgia tech and play there for four years and, and, uh, you know, great institution. I figured I'd come out of there and and get my degree, which I did in four years and go on to business. And then my junior year, 
pro scouts started kind of knocking at the door. I, I ran a four, three, five, 40. And, uh, you know, those kinds of measurables get people's attention. Six, two, almost 200 pounds and ran a four, three, five and, and played all the special teams and could run deep and was a sprinter on the track team at Georgia tech and all those things. So, you know, as luck would happen, we ended up getting drafted, uh, with a bonus pick in the second round with the Seahawks, uh, in that first year, 1976, uh, and when when I look back and, and trust me, from what I can remember, I mean, I got hit in the head by Jack Tatum. So there's a lot of things I don't remember. But <laughs> from the things that I do remember, the, the opportunities that came my way uh, to be able, thanks to my parents, to go to a great high school and get a terrific education and play top notch high school football in the state of Kentucky. And and then to get a, an opportunity to go to Georgia Tech and on a scholarship where I knew I would get a terrific degree and then the bonus on that was to get drafted and play in the NFL for six years. And then by being out here in Seattle, I met my wife. We've been married 41 years now. So, you know, it, it's, it just has been a litany of wonderful things happening in my life. And uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And so that's, that's sort of how we got out here and, uh, and just kind of blessed to be here. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I, I haven't, uh, Hasn't been quite 50 years since my high school uh, uh, graduation, but uh, <laughs> I haven't gone to any of my into my reunions either. <laughs> I imagine when you get to, when you get to yours, uh, you you got to be one of, one of the most successful one of these one of the most successful people at your reunion, right? You know, it's really interesting. Um, there's a one of the guys who was on the committee, as I have come to find out, to put the thing together, was uh, was an admiral in the U.S. Navy and commanded. Uh, a, a ship uh, out in the Pacific, and I think an, a, an actual fleet in the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And he was based for a time in Bremerton. And oh, wow. so we, we touched base by emails and things like that, but our schedules would never sync up. You know, he was always busy. He was at sea. I was always, you know, on the road doing football games or doing something. So this will be our first opportunity since high school to actually chat uh, again with each other. And um, all I know is after 50 years, uh, I'm going to go and I'm, and I'm going to be confronted with a whole lot of really old guys. So I don't know who any of those people are going to be, but I'm going to show up anyway. <laughs> very, very, very right on. Um, you kind of answered my next question, but I'm still going to say it to you anyways. But in 1975, you led the rambling rack of Georgia Tech with a whopping 13 catches and 277 <laughs> yards and four touchdowns. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, we ran the wishbone, so we didn't throw very much. Uh, I think I had a couple of touchdowns on end of rounds too. So, um, but you know, I was, like I said, I was pretty fast. And, and so that's one of the things I think that got me out here uh, and a shot at playing pro football. Did, did you know the Seahawks were interested in you? No, that that's the really interesting thing. You know, everybody on, uh, on pro days, remember there was no combine in those days. So it would be just, okay, the scouts are going to be at the University of Georgia on Thursday. They're going to be at Georgia Tech on Friday. They're going to be at Auburn on Saturday. And so the, all these, these pro scouts would kind of make the rounds, right? And uh, so they show up and, and we had, my, my junior year, we had a couple of guys who were seniors and who were pretty good. Uh, and then my senior year, we had, like I think five of us got drafted uh, out of that, or four of us got drafted out of that class. Um, two of us actually made it for more than a year or so. And I played for six, but um, you know, it it was, it's, it's, it's hard to describe that 
the teams that show the least interest in you at times are the ones that maybe are the most interested and they just don't want to show their hand. The Packers. Now you got to remember, I'm a kid. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky in the sixties and late sixties. And um, the Green Bay Packers were, I mean, you know, from 60, what, 62 on throughout most of the sixties were the team to beat in the national football league. There was one game on television every weekend on Sunday. And if you were in the middle of the country, it was almost always the Packers. So I saw them every week. I could tell you today, the starting 22 on the 66 Packers. I mean, that's just so I, I run this four, three, five, and then I tear up my knee, my senior year, last game of my senior year, blew my knee out, had medial collateral surgery and cartilage torn and all that stuff. And I figured, well, that's it. Now I'll spend the rest of the off season in a, in a cast and that'll be the end of my career. I end up getting better. I end up running indoor track that year too, after all was said and done. And so the Packers called me and said, we're interested in you and we want to fly you to green Bay and have our doctors check your knee out. Well, I mean, for a kid whose heroes were the Packers, could anything greater have happened to me? I mean, I guarantee you it couldn't have. So they bring me into Lambeau Field and I meet their doctors. They check my knee. The, the general manager shows me around and he said, uh, here, we've got another meeting set up for you. He took me down to the locker room and there's the head coach, Bart Starr. Oh. Now, Bart Starr was the quarterback of the Packers in those days. Yeah. with Paul Horning and Jimmy Taylor and Elijah Pitts, mm. and Willie Woods on defense. And I mean, just you, Ray Nitsky in the middle, you name it. They had all the stars. So here I'm meeting and talking to and now having lunch with Bart Starr. Uh, and he also explained to me why there were ashtrays on every locker, by the way. He why? said, Steve, these are men who play this game at this level. <laughs> if they want to smoke, we're not going to tell them they can't. <laughs> okay. And they did. And the guys would come in at halftime and have a cigarette and then go back out and play. And that was the nature of the game in those days. So they showed the most interest in me. And Bart told me, Coach Starr told me, He said, we're going to take you in the third round if you're there. He said, we really like you. We know we need a wide receiver. But he said, I got to get two offensive linemen in the first two rounds. So I was kind of figured third, fourth, maybe fifth round. The Seahawks came up and they had two bonus picks at the end of the second round. And so with those bonus picks, they took Sherman Smith and myself. And that was that. And that's how I ended up in Seattle. And, um, you know, knock on wood i mean it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me i didn't know it at the time i thought i was going to you know just this just this last stop south of alaska or something i had no <laughs> idea where seattle was but it turned it's turned out pretty well awesome awesome uh before rob moves on to the next question uh don't get mad at me for saying this but my mom and dad wanted me to tell you hello and yes, you're great. favorite. thank you so much <laughs> yes I, I, they would disown me if i didn't tell you that so. i'm i'm very happy to say hi to them and again i'm, I'm very big with grandmothers these days uh there for I think you guys none of you were of age when we played I, listen we got an hour so uh i'm gonna just you know, stop me if I start rambling, which I go with it, go with it. But we had a series of drink glasses. They were about yay big when about 1979 or something that was made by, they were made by McDonald's and it was a series of six glasses in the set. And you'd get a glass if you went into McDonald's and bought, you know, I don't know, a trillion dollars worth of burgers and fries or something, but you get a glass. So these were, these were really 
pretty cool glass. I have one up in the cupboard up there. I should have grabbed it and just to show it to you. But uh, it, being on those glasses and people kept those glasses all these years and till I retired from Cairo TV about uh, what, two years ago now, every year I would get a, a shoebox filled with tissue paper and a glass. And inside there was one of those glasses. And they said with a note, we cleaned out our grandmother's garage. She passed away last year and we found this glass and we thought you'd like it. Oh, isn't that nice? So I get all these glasses. I bring them home and Sharon puts them up in the cupboard and I don't know what we're going to do with them, but uh, we have them. And, uh, um, you know, one day I was going to say there'll be collector's items, but no, they won't. But, you know, there's Largent and Sam McCullum and myself and Jimmy Zorn and Manutui Asasopo and all these guys who played at that period of time. And, and it was it was great. And and it's just very thoughtful of people to do that. But mostly it's from grandmas and grandpas. <laughs> right on. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. You're welcome. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, stepping over into uh, journalism. Um, yep. So after six years with the Seahawks, um uh, uh what you know i guess you kind of already answered the question but what it is what is it that really kept you here was it just the lure of of the uh opportunity to 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 go into the broadcasting the the, the, the game broadcasting or and and why not go back toward home um right. you know when you got done well it, it's interesting because um i retired i really hadn't planned on retiring when i did um, after my sixth season, I, I had a collapse lung in preseason of that year. So I missed the first six games, I guess, of the year, uh, on, on the injured list. And then I was activated and played the rest of the season, but, and then I tore some ligaments in my ankle on the last, on the last game. So I spent all the holidays in a walking boot. You know, it just wasn't a, a great last season of my, of, of football. So, in that spring, we brought in our very first ever guy who was going to do all of the, you know, now they have the physical trainers and all that stuff, like four deep. Uh, then we had one, we had two trainers on the team and they did all of the exercise physiology as well as taping ankles and everything else. So we finally hired a guy named Joe Vitt, who became a really good assistant coach in the league with Chuck Knox and then down in New Orleans and then in Miami. So he's, he's, he, great guy. I think he's retired now, but Joe killed us. I mean, he just killed us in the off season working out. So I was in the best shape of my life. I was ready to come back for season number seven. So middle of June, end of June, training camp starts middle of July. I'm in Spokane playing in a charity golf tournament and Sharon gets a phone call at the house and it's Pete Gross. Uh, everybody remembers Pete Gross, the first voice of the Seahawks uh, um, and became you know, a great friend while I was playing uh, even. And Pete called the house and said, Sharon, I want to talk to you. Um, we have some opportunities here at Cairo. Uh, one of them was to be the radio analyst because their guy was leaving and they needed to fill that role pretty quickly. They needed a backup guy on TV to Wayne Cody. And they needed a host for a nightly TV magazine show called PM Magazine which became Evening Magazine, and it's still on it. Right. And they said, and Pete said to Sharon, uh, we think Steve can do these things. Because I had done a lot of radio and TV in my last three years with the Seahawks in the offseason. Did a lot of stuff, charity stuff and telethons and all those things. So I could kind of, you know, practice and learn on the, on the run. And so 
she said, well, when do you need to know? And he said, I need to know with like in another week or so. She said, I'll have him there on Monday. <laughs> and that was that. And so we retired. And a week later, we had our goodbye thing with the team. And two weeks after that, I was working at Cairo TV and doing all those things and learning on the job. Uh, I had gotten a really good education at Georgia Tech, so I wasn't afraid of anything they were going to ask me to do. But the, the blessing was that Cairo let me learn. You know, Pete helped me along. He let me learn as the analyst. Uh, guys in the TV news department worked with me on writing for TV and understanding that it's different than writing a term paper, for instance. And I started to learn that business. And pretty soon, within three years, I was anchoring the new news. And then uh, by 92, so 10 years after I retired, I was the main evening anchor and held that job for 20, almost 28 years. That's outstanding. So that's how we got there. And, and uh, but it, again, thanks to a Sharon saying, okay, I'll have him there. Cause she said, that's a career. What you're doing right now is great, but you, you could have a career in television. And then again, Cairo offering me the opportunity. She right. those best, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the, the, aside from, you know, um, I, I mean, I, being able to meet my bride and spend 41 years, there's nothing that tops that, not football, not anything. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm a very lucky guy. Beautiful. Very nice. I'm sure you have hundreds of thousands of favorite moments at Cairo channel seven. Mm -hmm. Would you care to share one favorite moment? On the TV news side or just anything in TV or TV news side. Wow. Well, as you guys know, um, the nature of television news is such that it's generally not the best of news. We generally do our hardest work and our longest hours during the most trying times. Um, the, the big earthquake here was one um, we were on the air for seemed like 36 hours straight. Um, 9-11, while we would go, the network would go 40 minutes and we'd do 20 minutes. And we did that. We had a uh, uh, six anchors, two in the morning, two in the early afternoon, and two overnight. And so we just do like 12, uh, uh, eight hour wheels. And so you're on the air constantly with that. And of course, being here in Seattle, a, a major city, uh, all of the military located between Bremerton and, and uh, Fort Lewis and all the rest, you know, we, we could have been quite the target, especially because we didn't know what was going on at the time. Sure. Maybe the most, um, Maybe the most moving thing I did was, it was at the end of the 90s. I followed a group of medical professionals to uh, Bosnia. And that was at the time when there was this incredible civil war going on between the Christians and the Serbs. And um, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. Thousands were executed. Um, and one of the local uh, medical groups here sent an entire medical team. So I grabbed a cameraman and we followed him. And we went there and we stayed for a week. We slept on the floor of a safe house for a week. And then we'd go out with these folks. We just talk about dumb luck. Um, we got up the very first morning, my photographer and I. And there was a little cafe and this, we were based in uh, uh, Tirana, Albania, because we couldn't get into 
any of these other places, especially where the war was going on. I mean, they, they were blowing up airfields and the rest. Oh. So we went into Albania, which is where a lot of the refugees were coming out of, out of Bosnia uh, and Herzegovina and the rest. And we got up one morning, we, the first morning we, we went around the corner to, to get a little breakfast or something. And there was a young girl, she couldn't have been more than 16. She was the only person in the place that spoke English. And it was her aunt and uncle who owned this little cafe. So I talked to her for a minute. I said, we need something to eat. And I asked her a couple of questions. You know, how can I get a, how can we get a car? How can I do this? How can I do that? And she said, well, I can help you. And she said, I, I have, I know people, we can do that. So, you know, when you have a fistful of, uh, of George Washington's and, and in your pocket and, and you're really dedicated to telling this story and you have the help of somebody who can understand your language, um, we did it and we covered that story. And I'll never forget, we were, in a, we were in a camp and as far as the eye could see, it was tense. It was set up by the Italian military. Very few of those folks spoke English. We, we pulled up in our car, the cameraman jumps out and I grab the microphone, we start talking to people and I'm talking to a gendarme. He basically, he's like in Venice during his real life as a gendarme and here he's helping at a refugee camp and they're singing a whole big line of people and they're taking stuff off of trucks, supplies off of trucks, food and cots and medicine in boxes and they're just, and they're taking them off the trucks and they're stacking them up. I said, what, you know, what, what are you singing? And uh, he said, we sing so we don't cry. And that was to me, one of the most moving moments. Moments later, all of the medical personnel ran into a tent where a father who had gotten his whole family out on a, on a wagon pulled by a horse dropped dead of a heart attack after everybody was saved. I mean, those stories, they stick with you for, mm -hmm. you know, half your life. Mm -hmm. And so those were the things that I remember. I, we covered a lot of stories here from Green River to, to you know, the story of the Seahawks winning a Super Bowl and, and, and the parade through downtown Seattle. Great story. Like, you know, I, I can't tell you how, how happy that made the city. But I've been lucky to be able to cover both of those kinds of stories and, and you know, it made for, for me at least, a, a really well-rounded, uh, real well-rounded career. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that that that's amazing. I I, I can say for myself, I lose sight of you know, you wouldn't imagine that a, a local news anchor would have such experiences. I I wouldn't have thought. So that, that's 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 really amazing. Um, um, back to back to Cairo. Um, in uh what was it was it 93 uh Cairo went out of the box oh my god <laughs> See, some things I remember really well and some I've tried to forget <laughs> um, a lot of hype about out of the box uh yeah. and, and it seemed like when it was all said and done it would just ended up uh standing instead of sitting <laughs> right? yes exactly uh, walk us through that a bit if you can man well I I was we were, at the, I think it was the 92 Rose Bowl I was covering. At that time, I was anchoring the noon news, but I was also the sports director. And so I, I was covering the Rose Bowl. And I got a call from the then news director. And she said, uh, hey, we want you to be the, the main guy. So when you come back, take a few days off, come in, we're going to make the announcement that you're going to be the main news guy. So great. 
So I've, you know, I've anchored news now by this time, I'd anchored news for a, a number of years, seven, eight years, and I was fine with it. And within six months, they start talking about, we want to try something new. Hmm. And Rabes, you do this magazine show or have done it where you do a lot of walking and talking and you're, you know, you ad lib, you're on the radio all the time. So you don't need a script sometimes. So we want to try this and we think you'd be perfect for this. And then they explained it to me. And the out of the box thing sort of was, uh, you know, a, a growth later on what became after months of meetings and, and everybody in the station getting together and the general manager and the news director and the president of the organization and everybody talking about it. And that the phrase kept coming up, we have to think out of the box. Mm-hmm. And right away you start thinking, oh, this, 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 could, be, this could be interesting. <laughs> so anyway, they spent, God bless them, they spent a bloody fortune completely rebuilding our studios uh, to give this, this look of this expansive news gathering facility and combined it with Cairo Radio, which was 710 at the time was the blowtorch on on radio. I mean, they just wiped everybody out. Plus we had FM. So we had all of these things covered. It, it, frankly, it made a lot of sense. It just wasn't as well executed as it could have been. So you're right. What we ended up doing was the same news, uh, but walking for no apparent reason and stopping someplace in the newsroom for no apparent reason. And people started looking at that and I said, well, that's, you know, you're not doing anything different. And so the first couple of nights, the ratings were just through the roof and then they went back to where they were before. And a number of people, I'm sorry to say, lost their jobs because of that, as, as one would expect the case to be. But it was at a time when, you know, there wasn't a lot of cable. You know, you had basically four stations in Seattle, three of them did news and the competition was really tight among the three. And so you were always looking for that edge. We were frankly just a few years ahead of everybody is what it was. Look at everybody now. I mean, everybody's got these big studio looking facilities and they stand up at big boards and monitors and they talk and they'll walk across the room. And we were just way ahead of our time. And uh, uh, it was it was kind of unfortunate because it turned off enough people that they didn't come back. And that's the unfortunate thing in a, in a business like television, you, you can't afford to lose anybody, especially those who are really your, your core dedicated viewers. Those folks are really important. So, you know, we tried it and that was that. And then we got a new news director and he came in and said, the first thing I'm doing is sitting your butt down in a chair and behind a desk. And that's where you're going to do the news from. I said, thank you very much. (laughs) Right on, right on. I'm going to jump over into, Brian, I think you muted yourself. I think yeah, we just, just lost, lost uh, just lost Brian there. Um, well, we're getting him back. Rob, do you want to go ahead and uh, pick it up from there? Sure. Oh, I think he's back. He's back. Oh, Sorry about that, guys. There you go. There you, go. <laughs> you left him speechless, Steve. Yeah, I know. I, now, see, I would expect myself to do something like that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you work in your early years of broadcasting. You work for Mr. Ken Baring, former Seahawks owner. Um, how did you manage your feelings as a broadcaster when you knew that Bering was actively trying to move the team? Well, it's interesting. I, I at that time I wasn't working for the Seahawks, so oh, okay. I was being paid by Cairo, okay, uh, the radio side. 
Uh, now I'm obviously a, a member of the Seahawks organization, uh, but they didn't have what they had was final say over the announcers. So they could have mixed me if they wanted to, but you know, I was an original and they, you know, I was doing okay on the air and you know, you have to, that's a fine line. You have to kind of walk that fine line. I let it be known. I wasn't happy when they tried to move the team to California. Um, but as a news guy, I was sent down there to cover it. And we were there for what a week before the commissioner, maybe a couple of weeks. And the commissioner said, no, come back. There's a lease on the kingdom. You can't break it this way. We'll figure out a, a way to make everybody happy. And what they figured out was forcing Mr. Baring to sell the team, which he did. And happily so to Paul Allen, at which time everything just, you know, took off. And we've been on that, that kind of run ever since, but it was difficult. And, you know, Ken Baring was, was, uh, he wasn't a bad guy. I mean, he was a, he was a tough businessman but he did a, some wonderful work in charity that he never got credit for okay. because he didn't want credit for it. But he also bought a football team because he thought it was a cool thing to do. And you don't buy a football team so that your son can have a business to run. You buy a football team because you want to help lead that team to a championship. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he understood what that was going to take. And consequently things turned South during his ownership, uh, but again, happily, it brought on Paul Allen, which then led to Mike Holmgren, which then led to the success that we've had since since 1999, you know, with only very few exceptions. I couldn't I couldn't sorry. imagine. Um, sorry, Brian. I, I couldn't sorry. imagine what what it would be like if we had indeed lost the Seahawks, especially when you look forward to us ending up losing the Sonics as well. Yeah. Right. Well, hey, what would the climate be in the oh city of my, Seattle? My goodness. <laughs> it would have been it would have been frightening now. As it turns out, you know, there was an expansion after that, and, and perhaps we would have gotten one of those. But when you lose something, a la the Sonics, look how long it's taking to try to get something back that yeah. you've lost. Um, but the, the commissioner and the rest of the owners knew they had worked so hard and so long to get a team out here in the far northwest corner of the country. They were not going to let it be lost to go down to Anaheim and, you know, play practice in what was the old Rams facility in Anaheim because the Rams by that time were, you know, headed to St. Louis. Right. So the league had to try to clamp down, which they did. And it, it I'm, I'm really glad they did. Yeah, thank goodness. Uh, you mentioned Paul Allen and great things are. And my question is what made Paul Allen so great as an owner? Paul, well, first of all, uh, he, you know, <laughs> To be an owner in the NFL, you, you better have the, the, the resources. He had resources. So there was never any question about that. But he also was demanding to the extent that uh, I, I'm going to hold all of you guys accountable. I'll do my part to keep this team here. But I need this to be a partnership, not only with the fans, but with local government and the community. And so that's why when after he bought the team and then the tiles remember started to fall off the ceiling of the kingdom. Uh, he said, I'm going to build a new stadium, but there is going to be a public part of that. And you politicians have to figure out how to get that through. And remember it was close. It was not oh. a slam dunk. Eastern part of the state wanted nothing to do with it. Now they'd forget that they, that, that happened. But yeah. in those days, they were, you know, the first returns were coming in from Eastern Washington and they were on the negative side. Uh, 
And we finally, through King County and, and uh, the Tri-County area here, made made it happen. And, and so Paul, I don't know, what did he put in? Like 150 million and then another two, 150, 300 million from bonds that ended up getting paid off way earlier than anybody expected. Uh, and we had an opportunity then to build Lumen Field, which at that time was Seahawks Stadium and then Quest and now Lumen. Um, and he, he was the kind of person who, held people responsible, but he gave you the opportunity to succeed more than gave you the opportunity. And when you didn't, then there was going to be a price to be paid. Um, you can ask Tim Ruskell and Jim Mora, who were the general manager and the head coach when Mike decided I'm, I'm going to step back and Jim Mora was the coach in waiting and Tim Ruskell and, and we had a terrible season and there was some infighting and, and nothing went right. And that's when he said, I'm going to clear the decks and I'm going to hire a new, you know, he hired a new president and Todd Lywicki. And they went out and they found, got Pete and John. And now we've been on this incredible run since then. Um, and the other thing about the other thing about uh, Paul, and I've told this story a number of times. We went to a charity event at his house many years ago on Mercer Island for Children's Hospital. And he paid everything. He paid all the expenses. He paid everything. It was you know, he's got a full-size basketball court and tennis court indoors at his home. Oh, wow. So, the, this, the you know, he owned the Trailblazers, and the Trailblazers would come up and practice at his place when they were in town. Oh, wow. And um, so the tennis court side was set up for the early evening sort of get-together cocktail party. I was emceeing. That's the only reason I'm there. I'm emceeing. <laughs> and Sharon and I are there. Then we move over to the basketball court, which was a complete dinner setup. We had dinner over there. While we were having dinner, Paul walked over to our table. He was sitting, sitting right behind us. He walked over to our table and he sat down and he and my wife, Sharon, talked about art. Now, everybody wants to talk football and everybody, and we were sitting at a table full of Microsoft people. And he and Sharon talked art because she's an artist and she remarked on some of the beautiful pieces that he had in his home. And he could not have been more engaging and uh, just genuinely thoughtful. And so uh, that made for a great night. The capper to that was after dinner, we all go back over to the tennis court side, which they completely changed into a nightclub. And Carlos Santana and his band played for two and a half hours. Oh, wow. And I, you know, okay, this is it. <laughs> if I never do another event, there's not going to be anything as great as this. So he, he was that kind of person. And like I said, he could be very, very tough businessman, but for the things that meant a lot to him. Uh, and I remember when we won the Super Bowl and he had the big after party back in New Jersey at our hotel uh, after the game. And I walked into an area where Cortez Kennedy was and a few of the other old guys were in there. And it turned out to be Paul's private area at this party. And he came over and gave us a big hug and, you know, he, he was just so thrilled, so happy that he could do that, help do that for the city. So I can't say enough good things about it. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Here we go. We've got, we've got to go to this. Um, <laughs> you know, catchphrases are a big deal, you know, in sports. Um, now, uh, Steve, are you kidding me is one, <laughs> but I got to know. Where did we where did we come up with holy catfish? I, I listen. If I knew that, I'd have I I would have patented it. 
Um, somebody, I did a charity event one time and they gave me a, a kind of a big plaque with a catfish with one of the Pope caps on holy catfish. Uh, I still got it somewhere down, uh, down, uh, downstairs. Um, I don't know. Uh, the truth is I probably said, I know I heard it a million times. I'm, you know, from went to, when you go to Georgia tech, you have kids who are, who are playing for you, who came from South of Macon and down in the Southern part of Alabama and stuff. And so, you know, so far out in the country, they have to pump in sunlight. So I know I, I heard stuff like that back there, sure. but my guess is it was such a, whatever happened. And I don't remember the first time I probably, I'm sure I can say this here because we're just on a, uh, uh, you know, a podcast, but I was probably getting ready to say, holy crap. And I thought, well, I can't say that. I'm on the radio. So I, holy catfish. And it just came out. And <laughs> it was born out of emotion. It was I, oh, emotion. oh, absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. don't, you, you don't have time to think up something like that. If I would have, I'd have thought of something a lot better than that. <laughs> but oh, it couldn't, uh, it couldn't be any better. It well, be. and, and now it, it, but as I've told people before, you can only use it once a game, unless it's like, if it's like the Super Bowl or the NFC Championship, and there are a number of amazing plays. But it's kind of it's got to be a big play for it to be a holy catfish. Have you have you dropped it yet this year? Have you had an opportunity? Uh, we haven't had enough chances. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think I have. I, you know uh, the the block. I, even the the block field goal that mm. uh, Tariq picked up and and or no. Uh, uh, Jackson, Jackson, Michael Jackson yeah. picked up and ran what eighty six yards uh, with for the touchdown. I don't think I even said it then. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't quite a big enough play because there wasn't enough other action throughout the rest of the game for it. To really yeah, yeah, it, it, it's tough, yeah. and and you know you also don't want to lose your mind on every play. I, sure, you know I, I I have worked with guys in the past who you know get crazy over a three yard game. Well, I, you know I, I'm sorry that. You wear out your listener if you start using that kind of stuff too much. So, you know, you try to keep it, you try to keep it sort of on even keel, but then when something happens, boom, then, then, it, then the, uh, then the temperature goes up. Where, how did you, uh, when did you know that your, your touchdown call was, was, was going to be iconic as it is that your, your touchdown Seahawks is just, I mean, forget about it. Well, it's, it's interesting about that. It, you know, the reason that uh, that we decided to do it that way. Um, first of all, Pete Gross said touchdown Seahawks. And I, I thought for a while that maybe I shouldn't do that because I, there's no way I can ever be Pete, nor do I want to even try. But then our producer, the guy who's been producing the broadcast since I became play-by-play guy, Brian O'Connell, he's vice president of broadcasting for the Seahawks. So he's been there a long time. And Brian said, um, you know, I think that's a good idea. And he said, the other reason, aside from the fact that Pete said it, was because it's not one guy who scores the touchdown. It's the team. If that receiver didn't have a quarterback throwing to him, and if that quarterback didn't have linemen blocking for him, we don't score. So it is, in fact, a touchdown by the team. And then you can talk about the player, the, you know, the DK Metcalf fabulous catch, the great throw by Geno. Uh, the great pickup in the backfield on the block in pass protection. So I did, you know, touchdown Seahawks. And and if you can remember back to the Super Bowl game and all those, it was basically a touchdown Seahawks. It was a, you know, just punchy. Pat O'Day 
became a great friend in the last 25 years, the late, great Pat O'Day. And we were having, I don't know, we were having lunch or something one day and we got to talking. And he said, I, I really like what you're doing. He said, why don't you try this? Why don't you let that, let that touchdown Seahawks, let it breathe a little bit. Extend that touchdown a little bit. Make the fan know that this is something big and just, just kind of let it live. And so I did. And the first time I did it, people looked at me like, you know, what, what happened? Did you, did you have, a, did you have a, a, a mini stroke in the middle of that, that you forgot where you were going, but it kind of worked. And now, you know, it's just sort of natural. And, and, uh, and that's what people have come to expect. So you can't very well change it. Um, but that's how it all happened. Again, as I said, when I, when we first started, there have been so many people that have helped me and been an influence on me and given me opportunities. When a guy like Pat O'Day says, you might want to try this. Duh. Yeah, I'm going to try it. <laughs> and, uh, and it, and it's just been one of those things that, that I've been lucky it's and it's worked. Wow. Well, it ain't broke. So don't fix it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Um, one more thing here. I think we have, we're good on time. So before we pivot again, um, back in the day, right. So uh, I've, been playing the Madden video games um, my whole life. Um, and I do you, do you, were you aware? Did they have to come to you? Because I, I remember seeing your name in a Madden video game. I think it might have been like 90, like Madden 95, where they had um, all time teams. Uh, and, and there was a few names on the rosters. Not, not all the names were on the rosters, but there was when you went to the 1976 Seahawks, there was a Rabel there. Were you, did you have, were you contacted by, by no. um, electronic arts or anything like that? No. To make that? Nope. Hmm. Nope. So thank you for telling me. Uh, I, I keep <laughs> an attorney funny. on retainer just for those purposes. <laughs> um, no, I, and, and you know, to be quite honest with you, I have, I have never played Madden. Uh, I have no earthly idea. You could sit me down in front of it and hand it to me, whatever it is. And I'd look at you like, you know, you had three heads. So uh, no, but, but here's what, what we do do. You know, when you listen to highlight, watch NFL Network on Monday and you hear them use highlights of big games and you they use a lot of times they use the radio guys. And especially as you start getting toward the playoffs and in the playoffs, suddenly there's so many fewer teams and your calls get amplified a lot. They get a lot of playtime. Um, but we get paid. NFL Films pays us a flat fee for using our voices. Oh. So that's that's how all that is taken care of. I mean, that's I'm, good. That's good, Steve. Because I was going to say you need some name, image, and likeness money. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> that, that's not about to happen. Uh, first of all, because the image and the likeness uh, they're, they're shot um, at this point in my life. And uh, name, you know, if 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 enough people don't know it by now, after how many years? Forty-seven years in this market, then they're probably never going to know it, and that's fine too. But um, yeah, so that's why sometimes you'll hear, you know, a call and here's the, here's a sneaky thing. NFL films or NFL uh, network sometimes they'll do a promo of their games coming up and they'll grab these little snippets of calls to promote the game. And I've heard my touchdown, but not the Seahawks part, but I've heard my touchdown used on other games. I've seen that. You know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and Brian O'Connell said, yeah, they, they back in NFL films, they like your touchdown call and they don't like some of the other guys they have to work with. Don't tell it. Don't NFL films. Don't, don't go. 
you know, suing me or anything. But uh, that so sometimes that happens and they they grab that. But you know, it's 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 great. It's it's nice to be able to sit there and all of a sudden, you know, your niece texts you and says, "I was just at the dentist's office and I heard you on the television." It's oh, great. I hope your teeth are good. <laughs> um, as a voice of the Seahawks, I'm sure you've had many great interviews over the years. Would you care to share one interview when you're as a, the announcer and not as a newsman? Wow. Uh, yeah, there have been, there really have been so many. Uh, I, you know, I interview Pete twice a week. Um, just interviewed him today for, uh, it airs during the news on Cairo radio every Friday morning. And then I interview him again for a pregame interview for the games. Pete is, is just always one of the best. He can be asked the same question 15 times during the course of the week. And if I ask him, uh, he'll make it sound like it's the first time he's heard the question. So he's really great. Um, let's see, I'll tell you one that was unbelievable and it just stuck with me for all these years. So I'm, I'm doing, any of you old enough to remember Wayne Cody? Yes. Yeah, okay. So Wayne, you know, did radio and television for Cairo TV. And he did a show called Sportsline. It was the first, you know, all sports program on radio of its kind here in Seattle. He did it five nights a week for two hours, seven to nine, Monday through Friday. But they also did a three-hour Saturday show. And they would have guest hosts or one of the TV guys or one of the other guys from radio would host it. And Wayne asked me if I wanted to come in and join him as a guest host a couple of times. So I did. That's how my broadcasting career started. And pretty soon he said, hey, you're all right at this. I'm not coming in on Saturday night. You be here. They'll have some guests for you to interview. Fill the three hours and send us your bill. Great. Okay. So maybe two or three months into that, the producer said, hey, you're not going to believe it. I got lucky. Pat Summerall is going to come on and give you 10 minutes. I've tracked him down. He's going to be at dinner in, in L.A. with some friends. But he said he'd, he'd sit, he'd talk for 10 minutes. That's fabulous. And again, another one of my heroes, like Bart Starr, right? Mm -hmm. Been listening to him since I was this big. So we get him on the line and we start talking. Now, remember, this is in the, this is, this is in the early 90s. There are no cell phones. He's standing out at the, the desk where the cashier stands at this really nice L.A. restaurant where the, you know, the person who takes you to your table. And he's talking on that phone. And so we start talking and, and I'm very cognizant of the time. 10 minutes is up. I said, Pat, listen, this has been great. I've really enjoyed it. He did some of our games. So he knew who I was. I said, this has been fabulous. I really appreciate it. And he said, well, I got a little more time if you want. Okay. We did another segment. Pretty soon we're there for an hour. He's standing outside the <laughs> lobby of this restaurant talking on the phone that they take reservations on and just could not have been nicer. I couldn't tell you now all the things we talked about, but it was a lot of it had to do with how do you, how did you get to where you are? How did you end up being, you know, a, a good solid kicker in the national football league to becoming the television voice of the national football league. And it was wonderful. Just a great conversation. So that's one that really has stuck with me. Um, you know, I, I, I've been lucky to be able to interview a lot of a lot of Bill Russell. Tough interview. Okay. Tough many years ago. Yeah. Tough interview. 
but good guy. I've gotten to know Lenny really well. Uh, all of that team, that championship team that Lenny coached, Fred, Gus, Jack, Wally, all of them became great friends, still are to this day. We can go into the same room and sit and chat for hours, more so than even some of my old football teammates. Uh, but those guys were all, all terrific. So, yeah, I, I've gotten real lucky and been able to talk to some, some really interesting people. Awesome. Very good. Very good. All right, uh, Steve, let's get real for a second. Uh -oh. um, one in three things, yeah. ha uh, uh, you know, haven't, haven't looked good. I should say one and two, excuse me. I was going to say, um, don't, don't, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I, I don't math the best all the time. No, um, uh, one and two things not looking too great. Um, uh, what is best case scenario for the 2022 Seattle Seahawks? That we win this week. That's best <laughs> case scenario. That's the only case. That's the only one that counts. One week at a time, right? Well, uh, you know, it sounds so trite and I know it does. Um, but it, it really is the only way you can look at it. As a player, you can't control anything outside of this week. You can't control anything other than your own job. So worrying about all that other stuff is, is really a waste of energy. Uh, and, and I've always felt that way. Even when we played, I never cared about, I couldn't tell you half the time who it was in the next couple of weeks that we played. And three weeks from now, I couldn't tell you who we're playing. I know we have the lions and then we have new Orleans only because they're back-to-back -back road trips. That's all I can tell you. Um, but it's never been hammered home as much as it has been with Pete over these last, what now 13 seasons that that really is his mantra is that every week is a championship week because it's the only week and it's right. the only one that counts. Um, so as, if we go, you know, two and two, that makes me and will make Pete very happy. And I got to tell you, I think we're going in the right direction. Um, I, uh, it's funny. I, I talked after the game in our post-game comments. I said, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. It's bad that we lost and it's sad and we, we got to play better on defense. But I said, I'm, I'm encouraged in my post-game comments on the radio. I said, we did a lot of things better this week, a lot better. Yeah, we lost the game. But we did a lot of things better. And then I'm driving home and I'm listening to Pete in his postgame comments. And he said, you know what? We did a lot of things better tonight. We played better in a lot of ways. That's so cool. you have to look at it that way. And he said the same thing today. We, we made great progress last week on offense. And he feels very comfortable about the way the offense is playing. And the, the incremental kinds of things they're doing on defense to get these young guys all up to speed, I think is going to pay dividends. I'm telling you, when these guys all get it, there's not a faster defense on the planet. And th there are so many great athletes on this, on this group uh, that, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to watch and practice and to see their ability. And then to know that, gosh, how did you let that guy get outside of you? Well, right. you didn't have good technique and you need to practice that. And as a young guy, you will practice it and they will get better. Okay. One more real one. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, um, two years later, right. Um, we gave up a, a, a pair of first rounds and a third round for one, Mr. Jamal Adams. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think if you look at it on the whole, you know, there was probably much more to be desired. How do you evaluate the Jamal Adams situation at this point? Uh, one way that I evaluate it is if you ask the other 31 general managers, would they have done the same deal? They'd all say yes. 
If they had an opportunity to get a guy as talented as Jamal Adams and the kinds of things that he brings to the table and the fact that he had, you know, almost no injury issues in his first few years in the league. And then suddenly it's all piled up on him in these last two years. Right. His football IQ is so high and he is, he is just absolutely determined every play to make a substantial difference in what happens on that play, whether it's a tackle or an interception. And he, all, he understands that there are some things that he's not great at, but he also understands that what he brings to the table is a skill set that very few guys doing what he does at safety can do. Right. And uh, it's just so, so desperately unfortunate what's happened to him. Um, to, to have the, you know, the shoulder and the hand and, and now, uh, the, you know, the, the injury, the, the torn, well, the knee, basically it's a knee injury, but it's the quad attachment to the knee. I mean, right. those kinds of things don't happen. Right. You ask any coach, they'll, they'll, you know, how many times have you seen that injury? You know, once maybe going all the way back to my days in college, it just doesn't happen. It happened to Jamal. So it's unfortunate, but again, uh, it's sort of like, remember the days when, when uh, in the uh, uh, supplemental draft, a kid out of Oklahoma, a linebacker who was an All-American named Brian Bosworth, was yep. suddenly available. And everybody, you put in a bunch of chits into a pot, and then a, a team is drawn out, and that's the team that gets the opportunity to draft him. Every team wanted an opportunity to draft Brian Bosworth. You know, he played pretty well here for a short time, and then injuries took their toll on him. And now he's a better actor than he was a football player. Uh, at least if, I love those commercials, the Dr. Pepper commercials. Um, but it just didn't it just didn't work out. But there's not a team that would not have taken him. I guarantee you. Same thing with Jamal. Yeah, very very unfortunate that you know. I mean, the only thing that matches his ability on the field is his just rotten luck at this point. Oh my! Exactly, exactly. It's just it's just it's too bad. But for some guys, it happens, and now. I guarantee you he's going to fight like hell to get back and to play again. That's just who he is. Sure. All right. We're going to end it, end it with some rapid fire. Rapid fire is where I'm going to ask you, or I'm actually, I'm going to mention a few former colleagues and friends of yours, and I would like you to describe them in one sentence or two, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, we'll start with the other Steve, Steve Largent. Um, best hands I've ever seen one of the most dedicated people I've ever met. Fabulous. Awesome. Uh, Pete Gross. My inspiration. Um, the guy who taught me the business uh, and as good a person as he was a broadcaster. Awesome. Uh, Harry Wappler. One of the funniest human beings you'll ever meet. Dedicated to his job. Loved his coworkers. Love being around him every day. Awesome. Uh, Wayne Cody. The mound of sound taught me that sports are supposed to be fun. Make it enjoyable for the listener. Let them know that you're having a good time. And at times was the most unprepared, yet the greatest broadcaster I ever saw. For <laughs> not doing homework. The greatest broadcaster I ever saw. <laughs> that's awesome. I, lo I loved Wayne Cody, but that's great to hear. Um, how about Dave Wyman? Dave Wyman is, I mean, he's a, he, he, he is, 
he's a, first of all, he's a great partner in the booth and he sees things that I'll never see defensively. He understands everything. He's smart. He, I think what I appreciate most, he's got a great sense of humor. We get along well. He loves my wife. Uh, I, I just can't say enough good things about, about Dave. Uh, it's funny. I know it's more than two sentences, Okay. <laughs> but we were flying back from someplace. This is how we actually got to be friends flying back. He was still playing and I can't sleep on planes, nor can he. So I was already broadcasting by then. We ended up standing in the aisle and talking for like four and a half hours on a flight back from someplace. And that's how we got to be friends. And so when there was the opportunity for him to get into radio and then come on board, I said, absolutely. Cause this is a guy that I know and can trust. Nice. Uh, two more Susan Hutchinson. Wow. Susie uh, taught me a lot about the business. You know what she taught me? One of the very first things she said, it's all about the audience. Um, nobody cares what you think. That's, that's changed now in TV news, especially at, at the you know, cable level. But nobody cares what you think. Your job is not to give your opinion. Your job is to be a disseminator of facts and to be sure that you're right with those facts. And so uh, I'll always appreciate the fact that she... She was the one who was the experienced anchor when I was just kind of coming on board and learning the business. And she really helped me a lot. Smart, smartest person. Wow. She was great. Uh, nice. And last but not least, Warren Moon. Warren Moon is like a brother. Um, I, I love him. I saw him the other day at the game. Hadn't seen him for a couple of months. Um, he, he's, he's like family because he, he, he visited my family when we'd go back East to play games. And, uh, you know, for my nieces, he was, it was uncle Warren. That's who he was as they were growing up. So, um, I, I just think, I think the absolute world of it, um, he's forgotten more football than I'll ever know. And I can't think of anybody better, uh, to be in the pro football hall of fame than Warren Moon. I got to tell you, Warren, Warren Moon, all the great things he did on the football field, um, with the Seattle Seahawks as well. Not just though with um, you know uh, Houston or or uh, Minnesota, um, but what's stuck in my mind is the yelp that he let out uh, during Marshawn Lynch's run, <laughs> yeah. uh, the Beastquake run against the Saints. He was just yes. like, whoa! Yeah. <laughs> he, he has described that as the screech around the world. <laughs> that yeah. was great, and nice. you know, and that's great. You don't want to bottle up that kind of enthusiasm. We're right. having fun. We're loving it just like the the. The fans are. So why not enjoy it for crying out loud? Yep. This has been great. It's been so amazing to have you on here, Steve, but we're heading towards the end of our show. Uh -huh. And uh, we always like to end our show on a shout out. Okay. And that's basically, you know, uh, ending with a little bit of positivity in the world. And I think today in this, well, not today, but <laughs> in recent time, a little more positivity could be used. And especially I'm going to start this off with a shout out to the people in Florida uh, and Hurricane Ian, uh, all the wreckage, the damage the destruction that's been caused. Uh, I definitely think about those people and uh, uh, hope for the best for them. Uh, over to you, Rob. Uh, me? Over to you, Rob. Sorry? Over to you. Oh, yeah. So, hey, well, I wanted to give my uh, uh, shout out to, uh, you know, I know we're going to end on a positive note, but uh, it's it's uh, uh, a little sad, but positive because he's passed on to a better place. Uh, but the uh, the rapper Coolio passed away uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, I actually just saw him in concert just a few, it's like maybe 
four or five months ago, right here uh, in, in Lake Elsinore, California, and uh, um, had no idea. So it, was, it came as kind of a shock. Um, so I, I, my shout out goes to him and, and, and his family. Over to you, Brian. Uh, my shout out to a buddy of mine, Rocky Reddy. He recently lost his mom, who's one of the best people I've ever met. Knowing her, she's probably up in heaven right now, greeting people at, at the gates of heaven. She's just an amazing woman. So rest in peace. And our very special guest, Steve Rebel. Um, this last weekend was the Lupus Awareness Walk here in Seattle. My wife has lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And so I understand the difficulty that, uh, that so many people in our community have who have to deal with any kind of debilitating sort of condition. Um, I, my shout out is to all those people who are suffering with and all those people who love them because they don't, they will tell you that we could not survive without those in our lives who help us every single day. So um, my, it, my hero, when people ask me my hero, it's my wife. And I'll, I'll bravely tell him that every day, what she has to go through. She's tougher than any football player. And that includes Walter Jones, any football player that I've ever met. And God bless her. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you. That's the end of our show. Check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Captivate FM, and YouTube. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Check us out at seattlesportsunion.com. A very special thank SSU thank you to our guest of honor, Steve yes. Rabel, on behalf of the SoCal Seahawk and the Soul Man. I am Abraham DeWeese. We'll see you guys next time. Later. Go Hawks.